The title for this one is Moses as Mediator in the One Mediator. So I've got a I've got a New Testament text in the back of my mind that kind of frames out this entire session. So what is does anybody does that ring a bell to anybody? There's there's a text in the New Testament that speaks about one mediator. Does that ring a bell to anybody? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay? So that's a, that's a text that's kind of framing out this entire session. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But so far, we've been talking about mediators. We've been saying all these different people who have been uh, go-betweens between God and human beings who have uh, been people involved with the covenant that God has made between human beings and Himself. We've been referring to them, or I've been referring to them at least, as mediators. So what's going on here? We've got this text from the New Testament that says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, but we've been talking about mediators. So that's that's sort of like the problem for tonight, okay? So let's uh, let's open up to Exodus chapter 24. And we'll start in verse 12. So, if you can remember last time, we just got done with, we, we, we really focused on 24, 1 through 11. And in these verses, uh, what did we see just by way of jogging your memories here? Oh, it wasn't, wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago. The blood of the covenant, Jesus. The blood of the covenants, right. So we saw Moses uh, involved in this meal, this sacred meal, in the presence of God. But then beforehand it was preceded by this sacrifice where he said, this is the blood of the covenant. And we showed how, or we saw how that is a, was a precursor to the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. And to communion, the communion that we have every time at Mass, but then also before communion, it's a sacrifice, the Eucharistic sacrifice. So we show how the sacred meal and the the Eucharist is both meal and sacrifice, and that meal and sacrifice is foreshadowed in the meal and the sacrifice that we see here in Exodus 24. So now we're moving on. we're, We're done with the meal talks about they beheld God and ate and drank. So now we're in verse 12. So how about we read um, just uh, the 12 and 12 to 14. So does anybody want to volunteer here? Nancy, you want to read 12 to 14? Moses on the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and while you are there, I will give you the stone tablets on which I have written the commandments intended for their instruction. So Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and went up to the mountain of God. The elders, however, had been told by him, Wait here for us until we return to you. Aaron and her are staying with you. If anyone has a complaint, let him refer the matter to them. Okay, so... Moses is, you know, it's like dad's gone. He puts in charge someone, right? Can he be trusted? Aaron and her are in charge. What's going to happen? It's not Ben-Hur, is it? What? It's not Ben-Hur. Oh, Moses and her. 
No, I don't know where it, uh, you know, Ben-Hur, that sounds like a Hebrew name to me or Aramaic. Ben, you know, Ben-Hur. Hur is probably a Hebrew name and that's a Hebrew name. So actually, it probably is. I'd have to look into that. Ben-Hur was a slave. Was he a slave? Yeah. In the, in the, right? I think he's based on a historical figure, right? Mm-hmm. Was he a Jewish slave? He was, he was Jewish. Oh, he's Jewish, but he yeah. Was, but he was, it was a prominent family, right? And the slave fell off the... Okay, but I mean, he was Jewish, though? And I don't remember, I don't think I saw the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just know it's famous because yeah. it had, <clears throat> they had tens of thousands of uh, secondary yeah. casts. Judah Ben Hur. Yeah. Yeah, Judah Ben Hur. Yeah, so actually it would be, Rich. Yeah, it would be her. That's what. That would be it. <laughs> yeah. Not him, but her. <laughs> Okay, so um, okay. Why don't we, uh, why don't you, Rich? Why don't you finish off the chapter? Okay. After Moses had gone up, a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled upon Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord was seen as a consuming fire on the mountain top. But Moses passed on uh, into the midst. Of the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and there he stayed for forty days and forty nights. Okay, good. So we've got uh, Moses entering into the cloud for forty days, and uh, if you recall from some previous uh, sessions, we uh, mentioned this rabbinical tradition, the Jewish rabbinical tradition about you know this. The rabbis pose the problem or the question: Well, do angels eat? And they say, well. Their, their process of reasoning was as follows. No, angels do not eat because we know when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he entered into the pres- into heaven, basically, into this in presence of uh, these angelic beings, and he didn't eat for 40 days. So, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. So it must be the inhabitants of heaven don't eat. They fast, in a certain sense, like Moses did for 40 days. They feed on the glory of God. And they feed on the glory of God. Angels, that's right. They feed on the glory of God, just like the elders there were doing. They, they beheld God and ate and drank. Okay. So now, we're going to skip over a few chapters here. So if we go from 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, we'll, we'll, basically we'll land on 31, 18. Okay. And... Uh, God instructs Moses on the building of the tabernacle. Now, does anybody know what the tabernacle is? Anybody can? I mean, we did talk about it again in past sessions, but I know it's kind of hard to remember. This is our 13th session, and not everybody here was, for, was here for all of them. But we did talk about the tabernacle right in the beginning in some of the early um, sessions. Does anybody recall what that is? Is that where the Ark of the Covenant was? The, in this case, yeah, they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the in its innermost recesses. Okay, uh, yeah. So yeah, that's absolutely right. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's probably the best way to you know talk about it. Um, anything else to add? I mean, there's more to it than that. The Holy of Holies is, is that right? Right, exactly. So when you, they talk about the Holy of Holies. And only the highest priest. Yeah, the high priest would go in there once yeah. a year. Does he remember what day of the year it would be? What feast? Tabernacles. No. Oh. It's Yom Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. Okay, and so the high priest would go. the The tabernacle had had two uh, compartments to it, and the the sacrificial altar was outside of it. Is whereas there was a basin where they would wash 
and then there was the sacrificial altar. What else was there? I think those were the two main items outside the tabernacle. And then the people would be behind them. And they would offer the sacrifices. They would take the blood from the sacrifices and then go into the tabernacle. And there was two compartments. There was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And they were both had veils on them. So there was a one outer veil, and then there was the inner veil. And they had all these beautiful uh, angelic figures sewn all over them. Okay, a lot like you, you know you'd almost see in a Catholic church. You know, it was, uh, cherubim were sewn on them, and they did moon and stars and things like that. It was almost like you'd look up, and there was like kind of a heavenly heavenly figures and images on them. And uh, they'd go into the holy place, and in the holy place you had a couple of uh, sacred sort of furniture items. Um, one of it was the uh, was the lamp of the presence, and it had, uh, I believe, it had seven basically candlesticks on it, and um, there were seven of the candlesticks. And the priest's job was to keep the oil in there, and so every week they'd make sure the oil was was you know in good supply. And then they would have the table of the bread of the presence, so the, the loaves of the bread would be set out, and then they would refresh that. Every week, I mean, really similar to how we, you know, it's almost like a foreshadowing of the Eucharist. We refresh the Eucharist on a weekly basis, make sure that our tabernacle, because that's our tabernacle where we keep the Eucharist, you know, is is being replenished on a weekly basis. And then uh, they had the altar of incense. So there's a second altar. There's a sacrificial altar outside, and then inside there was a, an altar. But it was an altar not for blood sacrifices, but for incense, burning incense. And the altar of the incense was right before that second inner veil. And then behind the inner veil was the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark was kept. Um, and so that was uh, you know, a really big deal. And over the Ark, you'd have, it was a, basically a box and then had a huge cover. I think it might have been something like this big. You know, the box would have been like this big. Father, okay. is it the Catholic belief that the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven right now? Um, I think uh, I don't think we have a standard. We don't have. There isn't a set because belief on that. In Revelation, it does say. Yeah. Then he looked up and he saw. Yeah. The Ark of the Covenant. Right. I, I would interpret that figuratively. Okay. Because I would I would say this is in Revelation chapter eleven, and what it's saying is that heaven is opened up. So it's just like the priests would go into the temple and they would go into the they would go into that inner veil and open up that inner veil and they'd see the Ark. So also, in the vision of the seer, of John, he's, he, heaven is opened, and the ark is opened, and the symbol of that is Jesus has opened up a way for us into heaven so that we can enter into heaven. Okay, because Jesus is our high priest. And so just as Jesus goes into the holiest of holies, so we're his body, and with him, and by him, and by the, you know, the graces that he has, he has merited for us, we're able to be redeemed and come back into the presence of God that was lost. And remember how in the beginning we were talking about how the Garden of Eden and the temple and the tabernacle are similar to each other. So basically, it's almost as if Adam was in the holiest of holies. And then because of original sin, he was expelled eastward. Remember eastward? They were expelled eastward of the garden. But eastward is the door of the tabernacle pointed eastward. And so it was like when the priest is going back in, uh, you know, they're, they're they're returning back to that original sanctuary where there was the presence of God in that communion. And so, 
you see how all, the, all these figures tie together. I mean, it's pretty wild. So I think in Revelation, it's a figure. Okay? Um, and the book of Hebrews is all about Christ bringing not the blood of bulls and goats, but His own blood into the holiest of holies when He ascended to heaven. Okay? And uh, came before the Father on our behalf, and He's there right now in the presence of... You know, w- with showing his wounds essentially, and that's uh, kind of like this uh, constant propitiation for on our behalf because of his wounds are there. You know, it's like the it's the effects of the sacrifice, it's the effects of Calvary that are are being prolongated throughout the course of the entire you know New Testament dispensation, and then those that kind of propitiatory power is then brought to us and made present in the sacrifice of the Mass. Okay? And then all that grace then is kind of released and made effectual in our lives in the here and the now. But it all it's all ties together. It's all really Do rabbis still do that on, on atonement? Do they still go in and do a sacrifice and do a blood There's no well right now there's no uh, so you know you had the temp tabernacle, right? And then um, the tabernacle they brought it was a movable sanctuary basically is what it was you put it up and you set it up and set, and take it down and the levites carried it and they carried it 40 years in the wilderness and then when they came into the land of Canaan they they set it up in different places i think there was maybe two or three places that it was that became kind of uh holy cities shiloh was the big one and I think they kind of made it a semi-temple, like they started adding stones to it. Okay, so it was like a little mini temple. And everybody came from all. Around. And then everybody came all from all around. And then eventually Solomon, so David. So then the kings start to become instituted, and then uh, around 1000 BC, and then David's son builds the temple in Jerusalem. And so then Jerusalem becomes the main holy city. And uh, in the temple, the temple was was framed out just like the tabernacle, but it was just solid and bigger. And then um, that gets destroyed with the Babylonians coming in in 586. And then it's rebuilt by the end of the 6th century. And that's the second tabernacle. I'm sorry, that's the second temple, but the ark is not in the holiest of holies. So the ark is missing All right, between the fi- in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in. There is this kind of hiatus and it's like a mystery. Now, one of the traditions, you read this in 2 Maccabees, is that Jeremiah the prophet, uh, I think with the help of some priests, if I'm not mistaken, he takes the tabernacle and he goes and he hides it on the same mountain where Moses died and was buried. All right? And it's a lot of interesting stuff here because in the apocalypse, when, oh, and so when, so Jeremiah hides it and the people come and try to look for it, like, where'd you put it? And he says, you know, you hey, whoa, back off. This is not going to be revealed until the end of the world when you know the redemption is made and Israel is the, the 12 tribes of Israel are restored. Now we believe that that took place, that eschatological event took place and was realized in Christ. And so the restoration, so the unveiling of the tabernacle, the, the uncovering, the, un- the finding of the tabernacle took place in the New Testament dispensation with Christ. But in the apocalypse, what happens is in chapter 11, says the heavens are open and they, they behold the tabernacle, but then in the next chapter, they look into heaven and who do they see? Not Christ. I mean, yeah, they, they do see Christ, but before Christ, who's, who gives birth to Him? In 12, they see the church, Israel, and Mary. You know, this female figure with the 12 stars. And she's 
the Ark of the Covenant. So it's, the implication is that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. All right. She was the original covenant. What? She was the original covenant. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can say you know Mary is the original temple in the sense that she you know the incarnation took place in her womb. So she housed God, just like the tab- tabernacle did, just like the temple did. And, uh, and there's other, there's more stuff to it. It's not fresh in my mind, but the very fact that the tradition has it that Jeremiah hid the um, Ark of the Covenant on the same mountain where Moses died, there's now this later tradition about the devil and St. Michael the Archangel arguing over the body of Moses and this whole idea of Moses possibly being assumed into heaven. And Mary's assumed into heaven. I, there's all these... You know, it's all not totally fresh in my mind, but you could do a whole lesson on that. No, that was that was his idea. And I don't know. My, my sense of the matter is that it's gone. And that it's... You know, in the New Testament, all the types are fulfilled. And so the, something like the physical ark is something that really belongs to the Old Testament era. And that to try to bring that back or, or focus on that like the actual box is like uh, you're counteracting what God did in Christ. Because Christ is... He, come, he came to bring an end to all the types you know, and to fulfill them. So I don't think there is. But there is a tradition in the Ethiopian church. Are you familiar with the tradition of the Ethiopian no. church? So has anybody ever seen um, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many different claims where it's at. There is a uh, right. an old, old, old priest that's been there. One before him that's supposed to be in Africa, right? Yeah. See, that's it. so he. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so John knows about this and, tradition a little bit here, and it's supposedly there. I mean, virtually unarmed. Yeah, really. I mean, it's like there's like a 93 year old priest guarding guarding the Ark of the Covenant. No, right? And he can't see, right? No, 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 no. We're being funny, but in the Ethiopian Church, in the Ethiopian Church, they they believe they have the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so so if you go to the Ethiopian Church, they're not they're not in communion with Rome, unfortunately, but they're they're an apostolic church. They go back to apostolic times. They're a very ancient church. And uh, they believe that they have the Ark of the Covenant, the physical Ark of the Covenant. I mean, some mysterious things have happened there too. I mean, oh, I'm sure people, there's traditions. I mean, yeah, like they, you know, I mean, so they claim. I yeah, mean, sure. We, we don't know. Right, we're not there. But right. I mean, Isn't right. the actual Ark was in Turkey? How right. so? I don't know. That's what well, they claimed a nice Templar. To, they even had it on Oak Island. You know, what I mean, you ever watched that series? They, no. they were looking on Oak Island yeah. when they had the. Yeah, I mean, there's all different theories where. Yeah, yeah. But so does the revelation all take place in Turkey? All the yeah. places they name are actually. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in the sense that John is basically in what we call Turkey. Yeah, receiving the revelation. So, anyways, I I think uh, it's it makes for a good uh, kind of mystery. You know, novel to try like a Dan Brown mystery novel tracing the tracing the Ark or whatever of the Covenant. I, I, I my guess is it's just gone. It's just and it's not going to be uncovered. And there's nothing. It's not it doesn't have spiritual significance anymore because it's been fulfilled. Its significance has been fulfilled in Christ. That's my sense of the matter. I mean, so I think the, probably the Ethiopian Church is a little bit off, but they probably don't have it. They have something probably very old that that was originally what was thought at some point to be the Ark, and then it's just hundreds of years go by and they. I mean, they probably have really kept it for a long, long time, you know. It's kind of like our Shroud of Turin, right? 
Well, the Shroud of Turin, uh, I don't know, I think you could make a good argument that it's authentic, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but no, we do have relics in our tradition that you could probably prove are not authentic, but were, but were guarded as if they were authentic for hundreds of years. You know, you could probably find a handful of what were thought to be authentic, you know, relics or important <laughs> items, and they're, and they're, you can show beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're not authentic, but we did think that for hundreds of and hundreds of years, and we guarded them as if they were authentic. Right. I think the shroud, you can make a good argument that it is authentic, actually. Isn't there a preserved saint in Rome <clears throat> that never aged, that's still on display in one of the... Uh, you have the phenomenon of the incorruptibles, so they're all over Europe. Yeah. It's not Rome. I mean, there's well, there's, I mean, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of them. Yeah, a saint, yeah, a saint that's on. You can actually... if you're That's all over Rome. All, all, all over, over Rome. Yeah. No they joke. Never aged and no joke. If you go, there was, my, my mother came when I was studying Rome at the North American College on the top of the Janiculum Hill. There was this little convent across the road and my mother stayed there. They would go into the chapel, they got an incorruptible saint sitting right there. It's all, yeah, every, yeah. every church that you walk into yeah, in Rome really. has an incorruptible saint yeah. everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, quite it's amazing. Mother Cabrini, I mean, Mother Cabrini yeah, incorruptible? Yeah, she's right in the altar. You can look at it. Okay. She's, yeah, she's, yeah, now, you know, the thing about the incorruptibles is we're really getting off track yeah. here. <laughs> So we actually we should probably go on. I could talk about that for a long time. We're talking about relics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Google it. Yeah, just Google it. Google has the answer for everything. Have your slides next week. Yeah, right. I know. Okay, so uh, uh, point here is 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. It's all about instructions for building the tabernacle. Okay. And what's interesting is the book of Hebrews, uh, and, and it's hinted as well, I mean, it's certainly it's hinted, um, like so, for example, if you go to uh, 27, ver, uh, chapter 27, verse 8, God says to Moses, you shall make it hollow with boards, talking about the ark, I think, as it, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And the point of the author of Hebrews, what he's saying is that the ark, the tabernacle, it was a shadow of basically this heavenly realm that Moses had entered into. So that the tabernacle is an image of heaven. Okay? And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we're talking about. In the Garden of Eden was an image of heaven. And then all of that kind of heavenly reality kind of comes to a head and is summed up in what Christ has done for us by his sacrifice and by going ascending into heaven and making intercession for us um, and, and his, his act of mediation for us. Okay, so let's go to uh, 31.18. So there's all this detail about the tabernacle. Tons of detail. So in 31.18 says, And he gave to Moses when he had made an end of speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. So God Himself writes the Ten Commandments on these two tablets. Okay. Now what's going to happen to these tablets? Come on. They're going to get broken. Everybody's seen uh, the Ten Commandments on Easter times coming up. Alright. So... Uh, 32, 1 through 6, uh, who wants to be brave? Reggie? A golden calf. One through what? A 1 through 6. Okay. When the people became aware of Moses' delay coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will be our leader. 
As for the man Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron replied, Have your wives and sons and daughters take off the golden earrings they are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, who accepted their offering, and fashioning this gold with a graving tool, made a molten calf. Then they cried out, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. On seeing this, Aaron built an altar before the calf and proclaimed, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. Early the next day, the people offered holocausts and brought peace offerings. Then they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Okay. Rose up to revel. The word revel there, that's translated revel in the... Hebrew has connotations of um, of sexual immorality, which was commonly associated with idolatry. And some idolatrous uh, practices, they really were, uh, from from what I understand, they were definitely involved with promiscuity. They even had, uh, the Canaanites had, um, in their pagan temples, they had, um, their priestesses were uh, were basically prostitutes. And you, part of their act of worship was actually having relations with the prostitute. And it was like, um, uh, you know, they, they saw it as a sacral kind of act that was basically um, invoking the blessing of fertility, you know, upon the land or upon their crops or something like that. But in any event, they had, it was, it was, it was, it could be, yeah, it was a, probably a combination, yeah, excuses, excuses, yeah, there's, Combination there, yeah. It was, it was like, oh, we like this religion. It sounds good to us. You know? yeah. um, and then also, though, uh, you know, though, on the one hand, I, I think, I think you're 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 right, Rich, uh, that it, it was just motivated by it was it was largely motivated by lust. But I do think that there was some kind of serious religious element to it. It was a perverse religiosity, but I mean, it was a serious, you know, um, like they really did believe that this was somehow. You know, spiritual and religious. You know, but at the same time, it would have been motivated by lust, no doubt. Uh, and uh, they would even um, Moloch was a god, uh, I believe, of the Canaanites, unless maybe it was the maybe it was the Moabites, but it was one of these ancient uh, tribes that were in the land there. And um, they offered their they they sacrificed their children to Moloch, so that was. So babies, and sometimes, like I think, it was their firstborn sons, and specific, specifically, they would they would sacrifice their firstborn sons. So this was the this was the religion that the Israelites were going to come into and and basically replace, okay, through violent means at God's command, and it's kind of a punishment upon the sins of the people of the land. Uh, and it says in Genesis specifically, when Abraham is sent in the land of Canaan. It says, uh, it says, now the Canaanites were in the land at that time, but uh, God adds afterwards, it says, it says uh, I'm going to send you out, your ancestors are going to be in, in Egypt for 400 years, and then they'll come back because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. So basically there's this kind of a limit. The sins of the Canaanites were there, but like God was... God was being patient with them and allowing them their civilization to continue to flourish for 400 years, and then because but at some point their sins reach a breaking point, and then then the judgment of God in history comes down upon them, and that's how it is with every nation. You know the sins they they can go so far, and then there's a breaking point, and then there's, there's judgment. Historical judgment takes place, 
and the civilization is is wiped out. And you know, have we? I, I wonder. You know, a sobering point. What are we at that point? You know, we've got. You know, I mean, how many? Uh, we just celebrated the uh, March for Life in Washington, and how many abortions have have taken place in America in just the past thirty years? It's it's just in one, and that's just one country. Let alone you take the whole world. You know. So, uh, but yeah, they sacrificed their children to Moloch, and it was the statue. Uh, you know, from what I understand, they had this big statue, and the and Moloch was like this uh, furnace, is what it was. It was a furnace, okay. And the mouth of the statue was like ah, and you'd that was the furnace in the mouth, okay. And then it had its arms out like this, and you'd put slide the baby down the arms, and it would go into the furnace, like but it was into the mouth of the idol. And then they would. Uh, they would play drums really, really loud so that you couldn't hear the screaming baby. You know. Well, that's Satanism. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just satanic. Yeah, it's just satanic, right? It's just obviously evil. And so we believe in the Christian tradition that oftentimes these pagan religions were started by demons. You know, and there was a demon that could. We talk about how angels can appear to people, and angels would sort of gather sort of material elements of the air and create an image. Okay. Well, demons, you know, sometimes God allows them to be able to do the same thing. Demons can appear to people in a in a semi-physical form, and a lot of these pagan religions probably were started by demons that actually appeared to the people and said, "I am Moloch" or "I am whatever," and they posed as gods and they said, "Worship me, offer sacrifices to me, and here are these sacred rites that I'm revealing to you." So, some of these religions started that way. So it takes a it takes a bit of discernment uh, to know when a when a true when a, there's an authentic revelation and a false revelation. You know, I've been listening a lot to um, I've been studying a lot about Islam. You know, on my spare time, not that I have a lot of spare time, but when I'm in the car, I listen to audio books, and then I buy certain things. So I'm trying to collect all the main works of the Islamic tradition and study it. And I can tell you that there are I, I'm just surprised to find. You know, when you study the Catholic tradition, you go back to Anthony of Egypt from the 4th century and even before, and then later on, St. Ignatius of Loyola. He's got his 16 rules for spiritual discernment. And there's all these principles about spiritual discernment, about how to tell you know, true religion from false religion, true revelation from false re- uh, revelation, true prophets from false prophets. And I tell you, Mohammed just fails like on every single point. You know, like a good Jesuit. If if Mohammed had just sat down with a good Jesuit, you know what I mean? Really, the Jesuit would have been like, "You're just is clearly satanic. Everything you're hearing is satanic." You know, it's like it just textbook. It's textbook, and it's in their tradition as well. It's really remarkable in their oral tradition. They talk very, very detailed tradition about how Mohammed began to receive his revelations. And it was over the course of about a year and a half before he was truly convinced that he really was a prophet. But for that whole year and a half, he was—he thought he was losing his mind. He thought he was going insane. He was—he tried to kill himself numerous times. Right? That—that's not a sign of very crafty. That's not a sign of a of an angel appearing to you or God appearing to you. You know, that you would have suicidal tendencies. That's a clearly you know, so. Uh, yeah, we have to have discernment, and that's what you know. Hopefully, we can gather as we continue to study our faith. So, uh, so yeah, here we have the golden calf, 
and they, they create the golden calf. Unfortunately, this is basically the original sin of Israel. And then uh, 32, 7 through 10. Um, I can read that one. So, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is stiff-necked people. Uh, It is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, but of you I will make a great nation." So now this is kind of we're getting into the area where I want to focus on here in our stu- in our study session, and here you have uh, God's wrath, right? He even uses burning, all these images of burning and anger and all this kind of stuff, um, and uh, we he says, okay, so I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to remake the nation from you, Moses. So Moses is going to become like a new Abraham, in a certain sense. That's kind of this idea. That's pre- that we're presented with. Oh, here's a side note. So they make a calf. Now, uh, from what I read from the scholars, that calf, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's an Egyptian idol. Okay, um, I think. Although maybe I, maybe it could be a Canaanite idol, but I think it's an Egyptian idol. If it is an Egyptian idol, it's very interesting, right? Because they're coming out of Egypt, but somehow Egypt is still sticking with them. They haven't come out of it fully. You know, so you got the saying: It's like God brought them out of Egypt, but has has he has he, he didn't yet bring Egypt out of them, mm-hmm. you know he brought them out of Egypt, but is Egypt still uh, in them or not, you know? Um, and uh, but isn't that true for us? Okay, so he's brought us out of Egypt through baptism, but why do many of us as baptized Christians do not live as baptized Christians? We don't live up to our baptism. Many many times we don't, and we have to. We have to. It's an imperative. You can't be saved unless you live up to your baptismal promises. You know, so it's really the same story kind of over again, you know, where you have the Israelites really getting leveled and getting wiped out and, and really not successfully entering into the promised land even though they were saved from Egypt. So likewise with many Christians, they're saved through baptism, but they, they stain their baptismal garment and they don't keep it intact. Every time we do a baptism, right, we say, we say to the, you know, basically to the, to the child, but through their sponsors, Keep this baptismal robe, you know, intact. Now, thank God we have the sacrament of reconciliation where we can get all cleaned up. But if you don't avail yourself of that, you know, it's, your fate is the same thing as the Israelites. So, um, and the secret, of course, is Christ. Christ is going to be the one who enables us to be obedient because we don't have the strength, we don't have the moral and spiritual resources within ourselves to to remain obedient to God's covenant and to His commands and His law. Uh, we, we, we really don't find it in ourselves because of original sin. And uh, so it's only through depending on, on Jesus Christ, the one who's been obedient. Um, we heard last, this past weekend in Mass, Christ went into the desert and He was tempted by the devil. And He overcame temptation. And so it's only through Him that we overcome temptation and that we're victorious over the temptations of the devil. So it's all it's all through Christ. He's gone... Uh, before us, as that high priest, you know, who's entered into the holiest of holies, and he's brought that atoning sacrifice there into the presence of God. There was your gospel for Sunday, about that was a good gospel with the temptations. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, very good gospel. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's read this next section. This is the one I want to focus on here. Um, 
uh, Donna or Ida or any any brave Tony. You want to, Tony? I know is a she likes to read. If you can, Tony, if you can do eleven through uh, fourteen. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should you anger? Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever." Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Awesome. Okay, very good. So um, now there's a number, there's a, really a lot of talking points on this passage. I think one thing we could talk about is God's anger, this whole thing of God being angry. Now, um, within the Catholic tradition, there are a numerous, there are numerous sort of uh, but I would say uh, philosophical streams of thought that undergird uh, the, the different theologies and theological schools of thought within the Catholic tradition. Um, the, the, there's a mainstream philosophical and theological tradition. It's not monolithic, meaning like all-encompassing, okay, but it's, it's very mainstream and it's very dominant in our tradition, so I feel justified in lots of times when I preach, I just preach as if that this sort of stream of thought is correct, period, and unquestionable. Because I got you gotta have some kind of framework within which you to, to, to sort of um, frame out your your theology. So uh, I've referred to St. Thomas, remember we drew from St. Thomas Aquinas in a couple of sessions back. So a lot of his theology I just kind of depend on. I just lean on his his philosophical um, uh, approach to things and his theological uh, approach to things. So, so given all of that, we have what's called the analogy of being. Okay, now if I can try to even get you to guys understand this, I'll be happy with myself here. <laughs> the analogy of being, and that is that uh, God is so transcendent of the world of of creatures. Okay, and so the idea is like, how do we go from created things to God? Um, now. There are uh, various created realities in the world that we can conceive. Our minds have the ability to grasp their essences and to define them, to actually to define. Now, if you think about define, if you, it's a Latin word, D-E and then F-I-N-E, fine, it means end. So to define something is to basically do this. Okay, I'm defining it. I'm tracing out its ends. All right. That's what you're doing metaphorically when you define something. You're, it becomes clear, okay, and you're circumscribing it basically. All right. So now I can grasp it. Okay. So if you, you know, my hand's big enough here. So I'm defining this. It's got edges, and I can grasp it. It becomes intangible in a certain sense conceptually. All right. And 
Uh, so there's created realities, and our created minds can grasp these created realities like human nature, like humanity, human beings. you got the traditional definition is that they're rational animals. All right. Now, if we were to analyze these two concepts, rationality and animality, uh, we, could, we could actually grasp with our minds what a human being is. Okay, We could grasp the essence of a human being. It's a rational animal. We've defined him. Okay, now, God, on the other hand, can't be defined. Okay, we can't grasp Him with our minds. He's so transcendent. He's, he, has, he, he is above created realities, totally transcendent of created realities. But this is the thing. Somehow we've got to be able to know Him, and there's got to be some relation, some way of, of going back to Him and, and understanding and getting knowledge of Him, simply because where did creation come from? Creation came from God. So created realities are still based on God, all right? They were created ex nihilo, but you know, out of nothing, but God's existence is eternal and prior to created existences. And they're going to echo God, the, the uncreated nature. It's going to somehow God's fingerprint is going to be left even if it's in a very like in an infinitely distant sense, God's fingerprint is going to be left on created realities. And so there is some way that we can gain knowledge of God through creatures. But it's not like we can grasp His essence like we can grasp the essence of creatures. So how do we understand that? And they this use a fancy term here, analogy of being. So we have these two, two levels or layers of, uh, of being, uncreated being, divine being, and then created being. And one way of getting knowledge of God is the via negativa. It's, it's through negative knowledge. So we can say things like God is uh, uncircums- uncircumscribed. Okay, He's not. You can't you know, define Him. He's, uh, okay. You can say that God is immortal, meaning not subject to death. So negative, right? We can say that God is um, incorporeal, which means not a body. So we can get knowledge of God by saying what He's not like. It's kind of a negative knowledge, all right. Now, but there's there's also what's called analogical knowledge, okay. So what we can't get of God is what's called univocal knowledge, which is like how I said we could grasp human nature. And when I say that, uh, you know, make a claim that, um, uh, you know, Nancy is wise. And gene is, gene is wise. There's this, I'm using the word wise for Nancy in the exact same way, in a univocal way, in the same way, equal way that I'm using it for Nancy. That word wise for Nancy means the same thing as it means for gene. Okay? But we can't do that with God. You can't have that univocal uh, language and conceptual understanding of God because of that transcendence, that huge gap between creatures and, and the Creator. Uh, but we can have negative knowledge of him. We can say what he's not. And then we can also have analogical knowledge. Okay, Because there's got to be some kind of analogy between creatures and, and the Creator. Because the creatures, again, they, they, they came from the Creator. So they've got to, they, they come bearing God's fingerprints on them of some, in some sense. And so what about uh, wisdom? What about love? What about um, knowledge? Can we say can we say these things? We can affirm these things of God. We can, but it's just analogously. Okay, so 
if I say that Nancy is wise and I say that God is wise, I'm using the word wise not in a univocal sense, but in an analogical sense. Okay, it's not the exact way. Okay, it's more like the the wise the word wise that we use as applicable to creatures is just this kind of a it's like a shadow. It's an analogy of a wisdom which is more properly and primarily found in God. Okay? And so this also comes true for the word Father and Son. And this gets into the, the doctrine of the Trinity. When we talk about Father and Son in, in God, we're, t- we're using them in analogous with analogous language. So we understand what a father and a son is on the basis of our experience of human fathers and sons, of created fathers and sons. Now that's not how it is in the Father and Son of the Holy Trinity. But really actually, the Father and Son that we know of at the level of created being is a reflection of a paternity and a sonship that is more fundamentally and foundationally found in God. So we reflect God rather than God reflecting us. You see, we're, we're like a distant echo or shadow of God. The created created being is this distant echo or shadow of uncreated being. So that's what we talk about when we talk about the analogy of being. All right. Now I say all that to say is this. God's wrath. We're looking at God's wrath and His anger. It's a metaphor. All right. So you've got all these different types of language. You've got negative language. You've got univocal language. You've got analogical language and you've got metaphorical language. Metaphorical language is the weakest kind of language. It's only a comparison. All right. So um, let me see if I can give a kind of a, 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 an illustration here. Um, you know, if I say that uh, you know my Mary's Mary's cheeks are are roses. Okay, that's metaphorical. I'm speaking metaphorical. What's maybe there's something in common like the rosy, the redness of the cheek versus the redness that's in the in the rose. So that's metaphorical language. Analogical language. If I were to say, you know, man is wise, it's like, um, you know, the difference between say you've got uh, this philosopher Socrates. Now he's a real individual human being, but then you have his statue. Now, if I go up to the statue and I, say, I refer that as, to that as Socrates, right? It's it's not uh, you know it's not a, there's that's like an analogy. It's an It's a this statue is like an analogy of the real person. So I can call it Socrates, but we know it's not really it's not really Socrates, but it's an analogy. It's an anal, uh, analogous language, whereas a metaphor is really weak language. All right. So I say all this to say that when the scriptures speak of God's wrath. It's using it metaphorically, all right. Um, so God, we don't, we, we can't imagine him as having human passions and anger and that kind of stuff. God is incorporeal; he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have, you know, hormones and testosterone and like he's not going to. He doesn't have nostrils that flare up and a face that gets red and all this kind of stuff. It's just a metaphor. But if we say that God is wise, that's not a metaphor. That's analogous language, all right? So that the wisdom that we see in the world is a reflection of a wisdom that's more foundationally and primarily found in God. All right, Rich? So this is, so this is like the essence of religion. Because I, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, it gets right, to the heart of things. Is that the other side of it, right? Um, when God says, you know, this is sure. my beloved son. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, when things are revealed to us, the thing is we can have uh, analogous, uh, analogical knowledge of God through philosophy as well. Sure. Okay, but when God speaks to us from the other side of that veil, when He reveals things to us and He reveals the mysteries of the Trinity and whatnot, certainly, it's an, it's much of it is is analogical language. Some of it's metaphor, though. Like so, I mean, in, in a certain sense, this is revelation as well. But it's a metaphor that God is mad and angry and all this stuff. It's he, it, you got to take it metaphorically. What it is is it's it's human beings in the history of salvation viewing the effects of human sin. What happens as a result of human sin? People get slaughtered. They die. All right. The the grace of God is is killed in them. There's mortal sin. Their salvation is lost. Uh, earthquakes take place. That's the result of human sin. It it's like as if God is angry. Okay, but it's a metaphor though. Okay. See, I was always taught that revelation was the available message of God to man. It is. It is. Okay. Yeah. But then how can it be metaphorically if it's kind of skewed? Uh, metaphorical is still meaning. It's still meaningful. Yeah. It's meaningful. You know, it's meaningful. Um, you know, yeah, so there's a lot of metaphor in Scripture. Tons of it. You know, when Christ... So, Christ would use parables. All those parables are metaphors. Okay, he would, you know, talk about the um, the seed and the, the man going out to sow the seed. It's a farmer sowing sure. seed. That's a metaphor. Okay, so Christ used metaphors to teach. You can use a metaphor to talk about religious truths. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, religious language encompasses all those different types of language. Univocal language, analogical language, metaphorical language... Okay, so it would encompass all of those. Um, and so is normal human... Well, normal human discourse that doesn't deal with God, that just deals with created things, would not use analogical language, but it would use metaphorical language, literal or univocal language. So my point is that God is really not anger. Angry, anger is a passion. Okay, And it has to do with with created beings. If I'm not mistaken, I, I would think that even angels are, don't... You know, You can't say that an angel gets angry. I'd have to really check that. There might be some sense in which you can use the word anger for like a spiritual, volitional reality, in which case you could say... Michael the Archangel. What? Michael the Archangel. That he would get you know angry in some sort. Maybe, maybe there's a way that you can say that. But how we understand anger, anger, for at least in the human experience, involves uh, the passions of, in the lower dimensions of the soul. It's a very bodily, corporeal thing. It's very animalistic. Animals get angry. I mean, in that sense, in the sense that human beings can get angry. So God is so transcendent that you know you can't don't. It's just a metaphor when the scriptures talk about. But when the scriptures talk about God's wisdom and His love, it's not a metaphor. Okay, it's uh, it's a reality, but it's analogical because the wisdom and the love that we experience uh, with creatures is just a reflection of a more foundational love. You see, so basically the good things, the perfections, because God encompasses in Himself the planitude of perfections, because God is perfect. And so in the world we experience various perfections. Anger is not a perfection. Alright? But love is. Wisdom is. And so the wisdom and the love and these perfections in the created world, they find themselves, the font... The source of these is really in God, who is the sum of all perfections in one. So when St. John in First Epistle says God is love, it's not a metaphor. But when Moses says God is full of wrath, it's a metaphor. Okay? Because it's a metaphor that's being associated with uh, the effects of sin. We see bad things happening 
from sin. St. Paul in Romans chapter 1, he says, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is clear to them, for God has revealed it to them ever since the creation of the world, His eternal Godhead, so forth and so on." And so he starts talking about how human beings have some knowledge of God and their conscience is there. And because they knew that and they denied their conscience, God, therefore God handed them over. And so then, because of their sin, because of the violation of their conscience, God allowed them to commit more sin and then more sin until they get completely tangled up in it. And he talks about you know, all this different idolatrous acts and sexual promiscuity and all this kind of stuff. So there's a certain amount that sin, the consequences, the negative consequences of sin is more sin. And the negative consequences of that is more sin. And there's this tangledness that starts taking place. And the people really, we get ourselves bound up and uh, that's what Paul is referring to as the wrath of God. But it's not that God is in heaven up there, you know, with his angry face or something like that. And I, I find that uh, this is really important to get because I think people grow up with a very kind of childlike knowledge of God. They think of God as like a big guy in the sky, and he's got a big beard. You Why know, do they think that because that's what the priests were telling us. Well, you know what? I tell you what. When you're a little kid, yeah. you can't decipher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to hell. You're to the, you don't dare to look cross-eyed. Yeah. And God's going to get mad at you. Yeah. Well, you know... Uh, it works. I'm th- you should have been there years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really... This is what I would say. This is what I would say. I, I read catechetical material from from the 16th century onwards. So I'm familiar with, catechis- with with catechetical books from all the different centuries. And I have to say, like even something like the Baltimore Catechism is really precise, and it does say these are just metaphors, these are just images and stuff. So in the, in the Catechism, if you read that, now maybe the clergy didn't do a good job of communicating that, but the Catechisms were excellent. So if you read the Baltimore Catechism, it's very explicit. It says things like, this is God is not really a guy with a beard in the sky. I mean, it's explicitly saying that to uh, elementary school kids. You know, that's when Brother kids up with the Baltimore Catechism. Yeah, and do you recall these passages where it has all of these wonderful images of a guy in the sky with a beard and all this kind of stuff? And they're, they're it's, 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 oh, yeah. yes, yeah. it's easy to grasp. That's right. Because yeah. even sixty, I'm almost sixty. It's easy for learn. yes. And I went to absolutely Catholic school and ground school. I, I open up these old catechisms and I see the pictures in them and they sticks in my mind. Mm-hmm. But Jesus used metaphor to teach as well. So these images are helpful. The seeds. Yeah, They're the seed is a metaphor. So you know, it's you just got to be able to use the discernment to say what's metaphorical, what's literal, what's analogical language, what's you know. And so God's wrath here is is really um, it's a metaphor, okay. Whereas when God is is talked about as love, it's it's a there's a sense in which that's not it's not a metaphor it's real uh, it might not be univocal okay but it is analogical meaning that the love like we shouldn't understand God's and God is love in terms of human love but we should rather understand human love in terms of that more primary and foundational love which is in God basically in lay terms this is like virtue and vice. In virtue and vice. Yeah. What, what about? Well, I'm saying, you know, I mean, love is virtue. Oh, comes sure. Comes from God. Yeah. You know, and you were talking about yeah. uh, things that are not of God. Right. Are vice. Vice. Is right. anger a vice? 
I'm sorry? Is Handler's advice? Uh, yes, well, what we have is uh, there's two these uh, fundamental sort of like uh, drives that are in us, okay? We've got in our the highest part of our spiritual faculties is the will and the intellect, okay? And you can't confuse the will and the intellect with emotions and things like that, okay? People do it all the time. It's very, very standard. People f- confuse their free will and their emotions all the time in the spiritual life. I find that in the moral life and the spiritual life. So anyways, the, the will and the intellect are spiritual faculties are very, very high, the highest faculties that we have. Emotions are lower, the lower part of our soul when passions. But in the lower parts of our soul, there's these two main uh, uh, sources of power, I would say, okay, psychological energy. On the one hand, it's what's called the irascible appetite, and on the other hand, it's what's called the concupiscible appetite. Concupiscible appetite is an appetite of like attraction, it sees a good and it goes, it wants it. It's attracted to this good. And it's expressed in two primary ways, food and reproductive stuff, okay, sex, basically, all right? So those are the two main concupiscible drives, and they're both good, all right? So th- those are, in a certain sense, uh, you know, well, they're good. I don't know if you want to call them reflections of God or something, but they're good, all right? They're, they're, not, they're not very spiritual. They're lower, you know, parts of who we are, but they're good. Okay, and then you have, and then you have what's called the irascible appetite. The irascible appetite is this: when we pursue the good, and things come against us to stop us from pursuing the good, the irascible appetite enables us to resist that. So it's to resist whatever's coming against us in our pursuit of the good. So you see how they, they bounce off. The concupiscible appetite draws us to the good, lower goods, sensible goods, food and reproduction, and then the irascible appetite. Basically, when we're pursuing higher goods, okay, love and virtue and heroism, when we're pursuing higher goods and these things come against us to stop us, then the irascible appetite gives us the strength to fight and to resist those things that are going to resist us in our pursuit of the good. So the irascible appetite is good in itself, okay? Uh, and it enables us to, it enables the mother to save the child who's covered under the rubble. You know, suddenly mothers get all this strength and they can, you know, it enables the soldier to fight for goodness, you know, to defend, the father to defend. And so there's a good thing about the irascible appetite. But this is the problem. Original sin. Okay, original sin comes on the scene and what starts happening is we have an imbalance in both of these drives. Both the concupiscible drive and the irascible drive get whacked out of alignment, and we can't really control them, and they start going opposite direction of our reason and free will. Our reason and free will are going this way, and our irascible appetite is going that way, and so we get angry in a bad sense. You see? No, but like it says, Jesus drove the, he put the whip together and he drove the money changers out of the temple. That would have been a, a perfectly rational usage of his irascible appetite. But uh, lo and behold, us. Uh, we have, we very rarely ever our irascible appetite is unless you know we're doing something fighting for uh, justice or truth. But in our everyday interactions with each other, we get mad. Very rarely is it just. Very rarely is it rational. Very rarely, and and we we try to just, we try to cons, uh, trick ourselves. We're like, oh, that was. Ju-. We get like this righteous indignation, and we're like, oh yeah, 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 that was. You know, this is so unjust. I can't believe it. And, when does it go from being immoral? 
Um, it's, you know, most most cases are going to be venial. Okay, but it, but when you do damage, if you do grave damage to another person, that would be when it you know it's a source of you know you can you you start to sin gravely. So you got to meet the criteria. Slander. So I mean, like if you get angry with someone, someone. Okay, so you've got you've got the seven uh, deadly vices, right? Capital vices. They're called capital vices because they're the head or the source of lots of sins. Okay, not because they themselves are the worst sins, but because they're the source of sins. So one of the capital vices is anger. All right, and out of anger comes uh, fighting. Okay, so if you physically abuse someone, you know you strike someone. Okay, unjustly. Then that would be a grave sin, you know. If you slander someone, okay, probably, um, you know, if you if you gravely damage their reputation, you know, unjustifiably. Um, if you out of anger killed someone, obviously, you know, murder. So that's how you would look at it. But oftentimes it's going to be a venial sin. We get mad and we. Maybe say some things that were not charitable and unkind, and you know. and then you make up. And that, right? If you can, and then you shouldn't. That's a sign, actually. Really, that's a sign that you're you're okay. Really, that you haven't you you, you let yourself got out of hand, but it didn't go so far. Okay. If you can go and you can say to the person, "I'm sorry," look them in the eyes, pray for them. You're you're good to go. You know that happens in families all the time. You know. So a little kid will say, you know, I, I was, uh, I got angry at my brother, but not, do you love your brother? Yes, I love my brother. Can you say that you love your brother? Yes, I can tell him. Okay, you're okay. You're doing okay. All right. But, uh, when it causes you to do these really bad things, that's when it turns into the, okay. What, what, what about the, uh, flooding of the earth and, and Noah and the ark and all that? Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't out of anger, or was that a reset? I mean, what was the deal there? You know, we, you can refer to it as the wrath of God and as God's anger, but only in a metaphorical manner. That was a, would have been a result of sin, certainly. Not you know, those that couldn't swim. I wouldn't think felt that way. I mean, it's a feelings in a certain sense, the feelings of the human beings. Uh, we're talking about what's in God. Like, so God is not possible. It's not, he's not capable of anger. You know, it's, this is anthropomorphic language. It's metaphorical language. You know, so there's something like natural disasters sometimes are a result of human sin. Sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes they're. Okay, so you know, you got these these natural disasters that sometimes are a result of sin. In the case of the deluge, it was a result of human sin, and so it's a consequence of human sin. And it, it, uh, you know, we can refer to it metaphorically as God's as God's wrath, as God's anger. But you know, just again, God is not. He, 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 you know, anger comes from like, we're literally talking about testosterone and chemicals in us, you know, and just God doesn't have that. He doesn't, he's not corporeal. He doesn't, he doesn't have a body. So that's why God had to send his only begotten son to become a man so that he could die. Yeah. Because he didn't want to flood out. He didn't want to send the flood down. Yeah, sure. Okay. And I guess it was evil he was attacking. Sure. Not. Well, it teaches us. It's a, it's pedagogical, all right. So when we see negative consequences, I mean, one of the one of the worst things that a, a kid can, can happen to a kid is uh, him to do something bad and get away with it. It's probably one of the worst things. And if that goes on and on and on and on, uh, it's probably one of the worst things that can happen to a kid because they're not learning the truth. They're not learning the truth of reality, of nature, of sin, and. Uh, Consequences are going to catch up with them at some point, and it's going to be real bad. So, it's you know you teach them when they're young, 
and then they get the point, and it's pedagogical point. So God allows these bad things to happen because out of love, ultimately, is the... It's, it's for the greater good. For the greater good. He's trying to teach us. So now what's remarkable here, though, is that Moses is able to stop the anger of God. He's able to change God's mind. God is immutable, though. So what's going on? What I want to really emphasize is how much the Bible uses anthropomorphic human language that's not literal. So it's not like God is sitting there and he thinks, you know what, I want to destroy these people. And then Moses says something, he says, okay, that's it, I changed my mind. Now, the language very much is like that, but if you want to be really accurate and literal, it's not, it's not like that because God does not exist in time. So it's not, uh, God can't change. God is immutable. There's not like one moment, God is one way, and the next moment, He's another way. Them are human emotions. They're not God. Yeah, well, we can change. We can, but God is not. Right. He's always the same. He's always the same. He's immutable. So, so uh, the main point being, though, is that there's no, there's not a, success, a successive series of, of moments in God. God is just simple and one. Okay, so there isn't change in God. It doesn't move like we exist in time because we change and we go from one moment to another moment. We do successive acts. Just not the. It's not how it is for God. God is totally eternal, immutable, unchangeable. There's no no time. Time is a measure of change, and if God doesn't change, there's no time in, in God. All right. So is God restricted because of that? I mean, in what way? We can, can only do good, right? Well, he God God would be limited by his own nature. That's how you would say it. Up deep, yeah. Yeah. God 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 would be limited only by his own nature. So, um, you know, nothing is impossible right. for God. Right. But. Uh, you know, St. Thomas, again, going back to St. Thomas, who's my, the guy that I use yeah, in the back of my mind. Thomas says that no thing when you... Okay, so there's a passage in Luke where the angel says to Mary after the conception, after the um, conception of Christ, and he says, uh, oh, but, and referring to Elizabeth, this is in Luke chapter 1, uh, for, for it is now six months, or for now it is now three months with her who is called barren, for no thing will be... Impossible with God. Now that word "thing," translated "thing," is in Greek "word" or or like rational reality. And so Thomas's point is that no rational thing is impossible with God. If it's a violation of reason, it is impossible because God can't violate His own nature. And uh, Saint Paul in one of the epistles says that uh, God cannot uh, God cannot lie. Because um, because it says he cannot deny himself, so God cannot deny himself. He can't deny his own nature. So we have to understand this in very human terms. Uh, all this language about God changing his mind, him getting angry, all this kind of stuff. And how I would uh, explain this is, we're going to talk about Moses here as a mediator, and. Um, We're going to talk about providence. I know this is getting kind of like some, some deep... Is this, does this make sense? I mean, when I'm talking about the analogy, uh, language of analogy and stuff, does that 
kind of makes sense, you know. Well, it's not in your everyday vocabulary. It's not in your everyday vocabulary. It gets really good. And I want to try this in like a 10-minute homily, you know, but I mean, we're sitting here, right, I'm talking to you guys, so we're trying to get, okay, you know, you're getting some of it. You might not be crystal clear. It's not crystal clear to me either, but I just am telling you what I what I know from what I've learned, okay? Oh, it makes sense. All right. So, so I know we're getting into deep stuff, but so let me continue here. So basically what you have in salvation history is this concept of providence, Okay. And, and providence is God's governmental arrangement of the world. All the different events in the world happen by God's will. It's the unfolding of His will. All the series of all the things that happen in time, and all the changes that take place and unfold in time. That's what we refer to as God's providence. And it's all there's a rationality to it all. There's an intelligence behind it all. And that's what you'll say. For example, you know, uh, you you um, you know, you're missing something. Right, and um, you know, you pray to St. Jude or something, right? And then uh, someone walks through the door and puts puts what you were, you know, your bag that you, you know, you left somewhere on the desk, and then you look through your bag and you find the thing that you were missing. You're like, oh my gosh! And so that happens five minutes after your prayer to St. Jude. You say that's that's not a coincidence. That's providence. Okay, that's God's providence. You know, or by providence, it was very providential that I met you today. Meaning that. There, there's, it's not a, it's not an irrational chance accident. There's some kind of reason and intelligence behind this certain thing, and we, a lot of people believe that. You know, uh, of course, we have to believe it as Christians and as Jews and as Muslims. We believe it, but I mean, even people who are not very religious, sometimes they get a sense that boy, there does seem to be like a kind of a reason that, that, that's ordering different events that might seem to appear to be chance and accidental, but there's got to be reason behind it. Some things are too coincidental to be coincidental. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it is. So this is what we refer to as providence, all right? And this is what this whole course is about. It's God arranging history in a certain way such that history means something. And it all adds up to and it points to and signifies Christ. Well, so... um, in that providential unfolding of God's kingdom, you know, we have this kind of omega point. It's this eschaton. That I keep using this word eschaton, that end point, that end goal, that everything is ordered towards. All the events of history are all funneling and heading towards this eschaton. Now, um, that's what we refer to as the kingdom of God. And we pray for it every day when we say... Uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Okay, let that eschaton be realized. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let these eternal plan, that eternal mind, that unchanging intellect, let it be realized in time and space. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we mean when we pray that prayer every day. Okay? So the kingdom of God is that eschaton, that coming, the, fu- the fullness of God's will for created reality, all right? being realized, being actualized. Now, there are uh, a, a process, of, there's a, a complex process of causation in the unfolding of that providential plan. And there are two different causation, uh, rea- uh, causal realities in this, two fundamentally different causal realities. One is you have the primary causation, and that's God Himself. God is the primary cause of all of that entire unfolding. Everything that happens, the fact that I just picked up this recorder was, was in God's providential plan from eternity. Everything that happens, everything, it's not a chance. Nothing is a chance from God's eternal perspective. Okay? Um, 
the fact that all of us were born and that we did live the lives that we've lived so far, it's all part of God's plan. So God is the primary cause of all of that. Now there's what's called the secondary causation, and that has to do with creatures. Secondary created causes, uh, primary uncreated cause, that is God. Secondary created causes, which are tons of stuff. There's, there's causal sequences taking place at the molecular level, level all throughout our bodies right now. Okay? Uh, our free will is causal. The fact that I decided to pick up that pen, I caused that pen f- to move from there to here. That's a free, my free will cause that was a cause as long as with the, the electronical synapses and chemical things going through my nervous system and all that's causal at the physical level. My free will was causal at the spiritual level. Alright? But that's a secondary causal sequence or chain. And so there's primary and, and secondary causes and they're happening at the same time. They're, they're simultaneous. And the metaphor that St. Thomas gives is the axe. The man who's chopping wood. Okay, so imagine you're chopping wood. You bring down the axe, and the axe head goes through the piece of wood and splits it in half. Now, we say, what split that piece of wood? Was it the axeman or was it the axe head? Which one was it? What caused that event to take place? Both. Both. And that's, that is primary causation and secondary causation summed up in a metaphor. Okay, so the primary cause is the axeman. The secondary cause is the axe head. All right, and so God is the primary cause, and so there's created things which are secondary causes, and they're both simultaneous. But one's primary and one's secondary. Simple as that. And so within God's the unfolding of God's providential plan, what's amazing is that God gives created realities, created beings, created things a real causal role in the coming of God's kingdom a real causal role in the coming of God's kingdom at the level of nature and grace. So that means that parents participate in the bringing about of a whole new human being when they conceive a human being. That's a secondary causal uh, role in the uh, the event of this creation of a whole new human being um, at the level of nature. All right? Um, and at the level of grace, when we pray, okay, when you pray, you are participating in the unfolding of God's kingdom. You are a real secondary cause of grace in the world. You're not a primary cause of grace because that's only God, but you are a real secondary cause of grace for yourself. You cause yourself to grow in grace when you pray. And you play a, a real causal role in other people growing in grace when you pray for them. Okay, So we have a real role in the unfolding of God's kingdom and in His will being done on earth. It's, a, it's an authentic, just as much as that, we can say that axe head cut that chop, that block of wood and really did it. It's totally meaningful. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a false phrase in any way whatsoever. It's not even a metaphor. So it's a straight... Ford univocal statement that that axe had cut that piece of wood. Totally true. There's nothing false about it. So also we can say, uh, you know, you, Charlie, are the cause of this person, you know, 
getting the, their their prayers answered or getting whatever happened in their life because of your prayers, for example. Okay. Only by and through the grace of God. But the grace, but God is the primary cause, and absolutely, and so grace comes from God. Yeah. So now we're going to start talking about Moses as a mediator, okay, and how Christ is a mediator in one sense, and Moses is a mediator in another sense, and how we're all mediators in a certain sense, and how Mary is a mediator. Okay. So let's look at some scriptures here. Deuteronomy five five. I got these laid out before you here. If we go back to what we're referring to as the day of the church, okay? Remember when Moses stood at Mount Sinai and uh, the voice of God boomed from heaven and the people were really frightened when the Ten Commandments were spoken? And they said, oh my gosh, okay, Moses, you stand between God and us and you tell His words to us and we'll listen and whatever He says we'll do, but don't let God speak, otherwise we're going to die. And they were really frightened, right? Well, this is Deuteronomy's kind of reflective take on that whole event. Moses says, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to announce to you the words of the Lord because you were afraid before the fire and you went not up uh, to the mountain. Now, in the Septuagint, which is again the Old Testament Greek, uh, or the Old Testament Bible it translated into Greek, it's got this Greek uh, phrase, meson. Okay, meson. And then, if let's now go to the second text that we've got laid before us. Let's go to Galatians. This is St. Paul writing in Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained by angels through a mediator. Now, a mediator implies more than one, but God is one. Now, that mediator that Paul is referring to is Moses. Okay? And if we look in the Greek... It's uh, uh, mesites, actually, is the Greek word, mesites. And it's relative to this word meson, which means midst. So a mediator is someone, so I'm standing in between, you know, if I got a little closer here, between Nancy and Jean, I'm in their midst, in their meson, okay? Uh, And so therefore, I am functioning as a mesites, as a mediator, in that sense. I'm going between them. Okay, and so Moses is functioning as a mediator between God and the children of Israel, and they and both parties understand this and they get this. Now, if you go to, I got some other passages that use this word mesites uh, in Job chapter nine. Uh, Job says, "Would that were, there were a mediator for us and an investigator and one to hear the case between us two. And so, actually, Job is is lamenting the fact that somehow. There isn't this bridge between him and God. He feels distant from God and there isn't this mediator between him and God. Okay, But then in another passage, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he shall stand upon the earth and I shall see him with my own flesh, so forth, uh, with the eyes of my own flesh. And so there's a prophecy about Christ. There's all these angelic figures and mediators in Job. Uh, and then there's this really a prophecy about, about Christ in, in the book of Job. But in any event, you have... Uh, in this passage of Job, both of these words, the noun, mesites, and um, the word midst, or between, meson, they're both being used. So let's turn it over here. Now we've got this passage from 1 Timothy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, himself man, Christ Jesus. And it's mesites. Okay? So the point is, is that the same word, mesites or mediator, is being used of Christ. And the passage is that he's, there's only one. But wait a second. 
It's also saying that Moses is a messy taste. Moses is a mediator. I thought there was only... Wait a second, Paul. Are you contradicting yourself? In Galatians, you said... You know, in Timothy, you're saying that there's one mediator, but in Galatians, you're calling Moses a mediator too. What's going on here? Difference between primary and secondary causation. Okay? So, Christ is a mediator in a way that no one else is. And that's what we mean when we say that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no one who is a mediator in the way and in the sense that Christ is a mediator. Christ is uh, God Himself who has infinite worth, infinite dignity, infinite value, and He in the Incarnation has taken up into Himself a fully human nature and united it with His divine nature in the single person, in the single divine person of the second person of the Trinity. And he was born of the Virgin, who consequently is the mother of God. And he lived amongst us uh, in, in a fully human fashion. And he was able to suffer. I preached about this a lot during Christmas and all these different things. And so Christ's suffering uh, had an infinite worth and value to it because it was the suffering of an infinitely valuable and infinitely worthy person, a divine person. Okay? And so that was that uh, suffering that he did out of love for God and out of love for human beings was more pleasing to God than man's sin was displeasing to God. Okay? And Christ, that fence merited by means of satisfaction, by making satisfaction for us, he merited an infinite treasure of grace. Alright? And then, okay, so that, that's, that's an act of mediation that is totally unique. And he is therefore the one meteor between God and man. There's no one that even comes, there's no, no creature, not Mary, no one, that does that's that's just completely unique. A divine person meriting an infinite treasure of graces for us through his suffering. That's the atonement, that's the redemption. Totally unique. <coughs> Nothing like it. But then there's the application of those graces. And those graces are applied to us through the sacraments, through the mediation of priests, through the through the mediation of all the different members of the body of Christ. We all mediate for each other. When we pray we can be a real secondary cause of grace for someone. When we suffer and we offer up our sufferings to God, our sufferings through Christ and in Christ can become salvific for our own souls and for others. But it's in a secondary fashion, not in a primary fashion. Christ is a mediator in a sense that no one else could ever be. Okay? Um, so there's a famous passage in uh, Colossians 1.24. And uh, actually, why don't we turn there, okay? So you got... With Paul's epistles, you have Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. And Colossians is before Thessalonians. Go this way here. 
What number are we going to? Colossians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 24. Kind of a famous text for Catholics, actually. Alright. You guys there? Okay. Um, uh, Joyce, you want to read? 124? Is it now I rejoice? Yep. Okay. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of His body, which is the church. That's good. Simple as that. Look at what he's doing. Look at what St. Paul is saying. He's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings and in my flesh, meaning in the, the punishments that he's actually receiving in his body as a prisoner. Okay, he goes without food, without... You know, I mean, he's, he's suffering in prison. All right? It's not like one of our posh prisons today. You know? It's, uh, it's, it was, yeah, it was real suffering in these dungeons and these places where these... So, you know, and, and just the fact that he's persecuted, the fact that he's in prison unjustly is suffering enough, even if it was a comfortable prison. His freedom is limited. You know, so there's these different sufferings that Paul is undergoing... But what he's doing is he's saying, I rejoice, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. So Christ's sufferings is for the sake, for the spiritual well-being and spiritual health and spiritual growth, the impartation of grace, which means the impartation of grace, for the church. So Paul, through his sufferings, is, you know, there is a satisfactory and atoning value to his sufferings for other people. But it's Paul uh, functioning as a secondary cause of grace, not as a primary cause of grace. God alone is the primary cause of grace, and God has given grace to us on behalf of Christ who has done this atoning act that's completely unique because he's, God, he's the God-man. All right, Totally unique. No human being could ever make an adequate satisfaction because we're of limited value, whereas Christ being the divine person is of infinite value. And so he, he merited an infinite uh, treasury of, of merits and graces for us. But basically, if you can kind of imagine it like a metaphor, is here's Christ who is God in His divine nature is the source of grace in that He became man and suffered and made atonement for us, uh, stored up this treasure chest of grace, and then here's Paul over here. And Paul, by virtue of his sufferings, is basically allowed to kind of dig his hands into that treasury chest and pass the riches on. And that's the, maybe the way that you would look at it. And so Paul is functioning as a mediator in that sense, just like Moses being called a mediator. And then, of course, we have Our Lady, who is a mediator par excellence because of her unique role in salvation history. So, now, Christ's act was completely unique because He's God. His act of atonement and redemption is completely unique because He's God. No one can even come close to that. But Mary, everybody else is basically like their distributors okay, of, uh, of the riches of grace. Mary, though, is a unique distributor of grace because she played a unique role in salvation history because when she said yes to the angel she caused the incarnation. 
That's crazy to think about this. She caused the incarnation is a real secondary cause of the incarnation. No other human being in the world can say that. Mary can say, I caused the incarnation and the incarnation is the salvation of the world. She mediated the incarnation, she mediated the incarnation freely as a created person through her intellect and her free will. She understood what was being said to her. She exercised faith and she said, May it be done to me according to your, to your word. And then at that moment, the incarnation took place. And she initiated his ministry, right? With the water and the wine. And then so, yeah, so then there's all these other little roles that she plays, but they're almost like an echo, really, of that more primary and fundamental role that she played when she said, yes, she brought about the incarnation. So if she was a mediator for God, why can't she be a mediator for us? In a, in a certain sense, in a certain sense, she was a, medi- a mediator in the, for the God-man, you know, yeah. Well, you had the, what the two children and three children or whatever uh, that she spoke to. What was it back in, in Fatima or yes. yeah? I mean, isn't how does that figure into? Because that's kind of the opposite. She was here on Earth and and dealing with God, and mm-hmm. then later she's in heaven yeah. and comes back down here. Right. So how does that... So so you're touching on a good point, actually. So what's happening now is basically our ministry of mediation is just beginning right now. Okay? And we basically transmit spiritual life through our prayers, through our good works, through you know how we influence our neighbor, and hopefully just living the Christian life and loving one another, raising our children well, things like that. We're mediating the life and the love and the grace of God in the world. It's just beginning. We will really start it when we die. And we're in God's immediate presence and we're enjoying the beatific vision. We're in heaven. That's when our prayers will really start to be effectual. But they're only going to be as effectual to the extent and in proportion to, to our merit and to our goodness on earth. That's why the holier we are right now, the more powerful we will be in heaven. And there are some people who are really powerful, sorry, really holy on earth, and so they're really powerful in heaven as mediators, as heavenly intercessors. And so you've got Abraham. We talked about Abraham in sessions past as a heavenly intercessor. Because of his unique role on earth, he has a unique role in heaven. Uh, St. Paul, the apostles, all of these people are powerful intercessors in heaven. All right, And um, then how much more so Mary? Because of her role on earth, that key role that she played in affecting the incarnation, all the more so in heaven now is she going to be an incredible mediator and intercessor for us. And that's why we can turn to her and, and uh, our prayers will be... Um, you know, She obtains for us the grace of God. So if you note the, the church's language, we say, Christ, have mercy on us. Christ, give us grace. God, be merciful to us. God, give us grace. Mary, obtain for us grace... Obtain for us through your prayers that you, when you go and you pray to your son, obtain for us this request, so forth and so on. This is the essence of our belief in the communion of saints. Sure, and then, and Paul says here, it says, for the sake of the, his body, which is the church, there is a communion. All, see, all of our, Christ is that causal, that primary cause, and he's incarnate, and in that incarnation, through the sacramental economy, we then kind of get taken up into his body and we become one Christ, body and head together, the total Christ. And so Christ is in the earth through us and we in him are effective in our sufferings, in our merits. So there's three things that we do. 
It's the, the worth of our sufferings, the worth of our merits, and the power of our prayers. Those are the three sources of, of power and change that we have. But they're all powerful and meaningful because of the communion of saints and because they're in Christ. We're all connected in Christ and we're connected to Christ. It's all like the blood flowing through the body. That's how it works. So, All right, I think we're, we're done here. We've reached an hour and a half. If you guys want to talk or ask questions more or have more comments, that's fine.